Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and begin because we are in the middle of votes, which I think many of you know. And we have voted, I think, on the first vote. I assume um, the other committee members have. And so we will recess when the second vote is called, go vote, and then come back. Um, so this is a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security. It will now come to order. I'm delighted to have Ranking Member Johnson here with me, and uh, we are very excited to hear what our witnesses have to say about the crisis in Georgia. Thank you both for being here. Um, given the nature of the hearing where some of us will be in person and some of us will be virtual, we're going to do questions by seniority and work to accommodate all the members, whether they be virtual or in person. The purpose of today's hearing is to engage with our witnesses about the current situation in Georgia to better understand how the United States can support a democratic resolution to the current political standoff. Georgia has come a long way in a relatively short period of time, as I think we would all agree. It's worked to establish and strengthen its democratic institutions. The path hasn't always been straight, but the overall trajectory has been positive. I had the honor of traveling with the ranking member of the full Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Risch, to Georgia in 2012 to observe their elections when Georgian, Georgia Dream took over as the ruling party. The election was notable for its peaceful transfer of power, which is critical to any democracy. And since that 2012 election, Georgia's democracy has been tested, but it's generally been strengthened and deepened. Georgia's also demonstrated a desire to join the European community. It's affirmed its desire to become a member of NATO, something that I have supported and continue to support. And as co-chair of the Senate NATO Observer Group, this is the exactly the path that we want for new democracies. And there is bipartisan support in the Senate for this route for Georgia. But Unfortunately, the situation facing Georgia today is a critical one, the resolution of which could either recommit the country to democracy or erode the efforts of many years. Now, while the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has reported that the 2020 elections were, and I quote, competitive and administered efficiently despite challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic, it also emphasized the need for election reform which I urge the Georgian government to undertake with expediency. It's not enough to hold an election that meets the threshold of legitimacy. Democratic elections must have robust mechanisms in place to resolve disagreements, mechanisms that are seen as fair by all participants in the democratic process. The United States has long been a friend and ally of a free and democratic Georgia, and this remains the case today. But that important relationship is dependent on Georgia's commitment to strengthening the institutions of democracy. And just to be clear, Georgia's commitment to democracy must be demonstrated through the actions of all Georgians, whether they are in the government or the opposition. So it's imperative that the government takes steps to ensure an independent judiciary and to work with all opposition parties to find a negotiated resolution to this crisis. We know that a truly democratic country must be responsive to the will of the people, but a successful democracy also needs to function and address the needs of its citizens. And right now, given the current impasse in Georgia, the only party who's winning is Russia. Russia thrives from disorder and chaos, and every day that members of the opposition sit in jail is a victory for Russia. Every day that Georgian parliament seats are empty, is a disservice to the people of Georgia and a victory for Russia. That's why I'm surprised and disappointed that all parties have allowed the current crisis to last so long. And today I will call on both sides, all sides actually, as we think about the two major parties and the other parties who are not in power, to put aside short-term political interests to instead look to the strengthening and perseverance of Georgian democracy. I hope this hearing will provide better clarity on how the United States can insist our ally, Georgia, to fulfill its democratic goals and solidify the representation of the values its people hold. 
I look forward to the testimony of our distinguished witnesses and to hearing your perspective on this important topic. Now I'd like to turn to Ranking Member Johnson for any opening remarks. Well, thank you, Madam Chair. I think I'll save all of us time by asking to have my opening remarks entered in the record and just associating myself with your comments. Uh, I really couldn't agree more, and I, I'm really pleased that you decided to hold this as your first hearing as, as chair. Um, you know, unfortunately, and we've, we've traveled the region, we, we've seen that, I always call them the belt of democracies around Russia, trying to break free from the legacy of corruption and just trying to escape, I'll call them the charms of Russia. Uh, and it is so important that uh, all parties, the, the opposition, the, the governing uh, party, come together and realize it is in their best interest, all of their interest, for Georgia to settle these disputes and get back to the, the hard work of governing, the hard work of democracy. So, that, you know, Georgia is just an example of so many of uh, those countries in the area. And I think so this is a perfect uh, a first hearing in, under your chair, chairwomanship. So I also want to thank the witnesses for your service to this country and uh, for testifying before us today. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, thank you very much, Senator Johnson, for those very nice comments and also for pointing out uh, something that I think it's important for Georgians and for everyone who's looking at our view about what's happening in Eastern Europe to know, and that is that there is very strong bipartisan agreement for how to move forward. So I think that's an important message from today's hearing. Um, we will now hear from our witnesses, and I'm going to introduce both of you, and then um, we'll ask you to go in the order in which I introduce you. Um, first, we'll start with the Honorable George Kent. Mr. Kent has served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs since September of 2018. In this capacity, he oversees policy toward Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and, of course, most important for this hearing, Georgia. Previously, he was Deputy Chief of Mission in Kiev, Ukraine, and he also served as the Senior Anti-Corruption Coordinator in the State Department's European Bureau. Since joining the Foreign Service in 1992, he has served in numerous countries, including Poland, Uzbekistan, and Thailand. Given this background, he clearly has extensive knowledge about Europe, and we look forward to his testimony today. Um, also appearing with Mr. Kent is Deputy Assistant Secretary Kara McDonald. Ms. McDonald has served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor since July of 2020. In this capacity, she oversees the Bureau's work on Europe, South and Central Asia, and the multilateral and global affairs teams. Prior to her current position, she served as U.S. Consul General Strasbourg and Deputy Permanent Representative to the Council of Europe. From 2015 to 2017, she was Director of Policy Planning and Coordination in the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs Bureau, and she previously served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Moldova. She has also worked around the world, including Haiti and Romania. Ms. McDonald, we are also excited to hear from you about democracy in Georgia. So, um, Mr. Mr. Kent, would you begin? Uh, thank you very much, Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Johnson, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting us here today to discuss our policy goals regarding Georgia, our efforts to bolster democracy and counter Russia's destabilizing actions in Georgia, and the challenges posed by recent developments. I'd like to start, uh, Chairwoman, by thanking you for your sustained interest and involvement in Georgia's success and your role along with Senator Risch as election monitors in that landmark election in 2012 that you described with a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, I'd like to associate myself as well with your opening statement, which I thought was a powerful uh, reiteration, not just of bipartisan support, but I think of the views held by many here in Washington. I'd like to thank the committee and others in Congress for the generous support for U.S. policy and programming towards Georgia. The United States has helped Georgia make real strides over the years in advancing democratic reforms and economic development, as well as in defending itself against Russian aggression. Georgia recovered after the 2000 war with Russia and with our support has built resilience to continued aggression. Russia uses its occupation of 20% of Georgia's territory, economic leverage, cyber attacks, and disinformation to sow division and distrust and to try to force Georgia to abandon its Euro-Atlantic aspirations. The United States uses diplomatic engagement 
assistance, and strong public messaging to push back against malign actions and to enhance the prospects for positive change. We strongly condemn the ongoing Russian occupation of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and we support Georgia's sovereignty and territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders. Georgia remains the United States' key strategic partner in the South Caucasus and an important partner in the wider Black Sea region. Georgia has been a steadfast partner of NATO, and we continue to support Georgia's choice to pursue NATO membership and closer ties within the Euro-Atlantic community. Efforts to bolster Georgia's Western orientation are particularly critical in the aftermath of last year's intensive fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh. The deployment of Russian troops as peacekeepers to Nagorno-Karabakh now means that Russia has boots on the ground in all three South Caucasus countries. Russia, Turkey, and Iran seek to further increase their influence in the region. Georgia fears being hemmed in by, or cut out of, competing infrastructure and other development projects as a result. We are exploring ways the United States can support greater cooperation among the South Caucasus countries while preserving their sovereignty and freedom of action. While Georgia faces such challenges from outside actors, it also faces serious internal challenges, as you have described. With U.S. assistance to bolster its efforts, Georgia has made significant democratic gains since independence. However, we agree that Georgia still has real work to do in strengthening institutions and democratic norms. Georgia's current political crisis is concerning both in terms of democratic development and the potential for increased vulnerability to Russian malign influence. Chairwoman, as you already quoted, the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe assessed the first round of parliamentary elections as competitive with fundamental freedoms respected, but they also noticed that the blurring of line between ruling party and state reduced public confidence in some aspects of the process. Unfortunately, most of the opposition boycotted the new parliament, even though polls indicate a majority of Georgians who voted for the opposition want the elected MPs to take up their seats, as you also pointed out. The February 23rd arrest of opposition leader Melia intensified the crisis. Melia's arrest represented a step backward for Georgian democracy. Both the ruling Georgia Dream Party and the opposition have failed to act on opportunities to de-escalate. This is a pivotal moment in Georgia's democratic development. As Georgia's strategic partner and friend, the United States must speak frankly when Georgia's leaders, especially in the ruling party, seem to be drifting from the path chosen by the people of Georgia. Integration into the West is a challenging road that requires a clear and unflinching commitment to shared values, democratic norms, and institutions with integrity that are foundational to a functioning democracy. Our Ambassador Kelly Degnan has worked tirelessly with EU counterparts over the past year to help Georgians move forward. Georgia's political leaders must summon the political will to resolve this crisis. The responsibility for success or failure rests squarely with them. Failure by the ruling party and opposition to reach agreement would imperil Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations. The administration looks forward to working with you in Congress and our European allies and partners to help identify further opportunities to support Georgia's democratic development and success. I look forward to answering your questions after my colleague has spoken. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. McDonald. Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Risch, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to speak about bolstering democracy in Georgia. Chairwoman Shaheen, I want to recognize as well your sustained personal leadership. Thank you both for your bipartisan leadership and generous support. I, too, associate myself with your opening statement. President Biden has been clear about the central role our values will play in foreign policy. This agenda to strengthen democracy, counter backsliding, and protect human rights is our best means to support Georgia's stability, prosperity, and Euro-Atlantic aspirations. Georgia has been a regional leader in democratic development in the face of Russian pressure. The parliamentary elections of 2012 saw the first fully democratic transfer of power since the country's independence. The adoption of labor reforms last September and laws on anti-discrimination and the rights of persons with disabilities are also positive advancements. And the constitutional and electoral reforms last summer paved the way for potentially more pluralistic and power-sharing governance. A series of negative developments and trends, however, trouble us greatly. 
and urgently call attention to the work that remains in protecting and advancing Georgia's democratic gains. Ruling party concentration of power in state institutions, a politicized judiciary, and pressure on civil society, these undermine Georgians' confidence in their own democracy. I will touch briefly on these democratic vulnerabilities in turn. The OSCE ODIR election observation mission, as has been noted, found that while last fall's parliamentary elections were competitive, they were, flaw- they were flawed. Allegations of irregularities, voter pressure, and a blurring of the border between the ruling party and the state. The OSCE ODIR mission specifically highlighted concerns about ruling party dominance in election commissions and shortcomings in the electoral complaints process. Although Parliament passed electoral reforms in 2020, Based on some ODIR recommendations, Parliament did not adopt critical and long-standing ODIR recommendations regarding the integrity of the electoral appeals process. The courts, in turn, did not serve as an effective check on election administration bodies. Credible domestic election monitors reported that the election administration and courts rejected most of their complaints. The people of Georgia must have confidence in the electoral process and their elected leaders. To that end, we are urging the government to implement the OSCE's election reform recommendations, and U.S. government assistance supports that goal. Politicization of the judiciary and prosecutions widely considered politically motivated also contribute to democratic vulnerability and reduce Georgia's resilience to stress on its democratic institutions. Ruling party dominance of the judiciary includes the undue influence of powerful judges on other judges and use of the disciplinary, promotion, and appointment system to exert influence on judges. We urge judicial reform, and our assistance supports the development of an independent, accountable, and people-centered judicial system. Finally, I want to say a word about pressure on civil society and free media. These are essential elements of democracy. Georgia suffers from a significant deterioration in the ruling party's conduct toward respected civil society leaders and an increasingly polarized national media environment. Disinformation and misinformation, both domestic and foreign, fuel division among Georgian communities. The United States supports programming to strengthen independent and free media and counter disinformation through informed media campaigns, media literacy, and building Georgia's capacity to protect its own information space. The vulnerabilities I outlined play to Russia's interests and open the door for other influences harmful to Georgia's Georgia's democratic path. Restoration of Georgia's role as a regional model of democratic development is becoming more and more urgent. We will work intensively to bolster its democratic institutions and processes, It is up to Georgia's leaders and political parties to restore Georgia's democratic reputation and earn the confidence of their constituents. The people of Georgia deserve no less. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Thank you very much, Ms. McDonald. Um, Senator Risch, would you like to make some opening remarks before Uh, we start the questions? Briefly, Madam Chairman. First of all, I, I did not hear your opening remarks, and I didn't see them. For the record, I want to associate myself with those remarks. <laughs> Good, we're Sen- happy to share them. <laughs> Senator Shaheen and I have talked about this issue at length. Uh, there, there's no daylight between us, I don't believe, on the issue, uh, starting from the time we went there in 2012 uh, in the fall to uh, observe the elections. Uh, since uh, Georgia's independence in 1991, there was, uh, there's, there's been a, quite a bit of progress in building democracy and implementing market-based economic reforms. Uh, they've done this despite Russia's illegal occupation of a fifth of its territory since 2008. Georgia has also been a reliable U.S. security partner with ambitions to join both uh, EU and NATO. A lot of us on both sides have, a strong, have been a strong supporter of Georgia for many years. It is likely, uh, it's already been mentioned, Senator uh, Senator Shaheen and I traveled there in 2012, and I have to tell you that uh, I I was uh, very impressed uh, and really believed that uh, uh, the country was going to be off to a roaring start. We had the opportunity to go into the camps, the real camps of uh, both sides the morning after the election, both the losing side and the winning side, and met with the heads of the parties, uh, Mr. Saakashvili and Mr. Vanishvili. And um, uh, 
it was, uh, I, I've, been, I've been in 36 elections myself. I've been in camps the morning after of both winners and losers of elections on all sides from president uh, on down. And I have to tell you that the feeling in both of those camps was exactly like an American election. Uh, the, the winners felt as winners, losers felt as losers. And I, uh, we had a very candid conversation with them. They were making some brash statements at that time, which happens the morning after the election, particularly when you've been up all night. But in any event... Uh, I, I was, uh, after listening to the comments, I thought, nah, I don't know about this. But then uh, shortly after that, uh, I became uh, very optimistic because the two sides agreed to meet as we had urged them and, and suggested. And uh, uh, so we, we felt good as the thing took off. Then uh, as time went on, uh, uh, we, we were a little disillusioned as there were more and more political prosecutions. And uh, again, we urged as best we could that that, that wasn't the way forward. Um, in addition to that, uh, and unfortunately, in the past few years, uh, we've watched uh, the country suffer from democratic backsliding. And it's really unfortunate because the, the country deserves better. Um, it, it's in a unique position to be able to pull itself away from uh, uh, its uh, history uh, with the uh, USSR. And uh, what's going on now, of course, is increasing oligarch influence over the judiciary, media, and much of political life. Responsibility for the current crisis facing Georgia, the culmination of several years of increased tensions and failed reforms, is shared by all sides, I believe. The two main political parties and their leaders must realize their duty to do the, uh, to their country and move past their uh, disagreements. Um, I'll take it just a very short period of time and tell a story that uh, when we met with uh, Mr. Saakashvili, he was the first one we met with who had lost, and he was uh, insistent that he wasn't going to assist in transition or what have you, and I asked him if he'd ever heard of George Washington, and he said, yes, he had. Everybody's heard of George Washington. And I said, well, he was our first president, as you know, and I said, uh, 200 years from now, uh, with this election being the first open and fair and free election, every child in Georgia will read about you as the first president to go through this election, how do you want them to remember you? Like George Washington or like someone who was a sore loser and thought more of themselves than the country? He listened carefully, didn't he, Jane, to that, <laughs> that speech? And uh, uh, again, it was, it was just out of the chute. So anyway, um, I, I, again, we, we felt good about that. I, want, um, I, I, don't, I do not want to emphasize that the party of government, Georgian Dream, bears... Um, I do want to emphasize that the uh, party of government, Georgia Dream, bears a special responsibility for leading Georgia out of this crisis. This conflict only hurts the country and its people and opens the door for Russia. I know our ambassador in Tbilisi, uh, Kelly uh, Dignan, and the embassy team have been working tirelessly to facilitate a, negoti a negotiated solution between the two parties, and I'm very appreciative of their efforts. Although I've under, I understand there's been a little slippage backwards, I urge them to continue, and I would certainly urge Georgia Dream and, uh, and the government to uh, uh, negotiate in good faith and try to get through this. Georgia's at a critical moment. If it cannot make uh, its democracy work now, I don't know when it can. It will lose its opportunity to join the, e, uh, the Euro-Atlantic institutions. Uh, Georgia's political leaders must negotiate an end to this current crisis and agree to needed reforms to improve uh, Georgia's future. And so with that, thank you for allowing me to make an opening statement, Madam Chair. Thank you very much, Senator Risch. Um, we'll, we will now have a round of questions. We have seven-minute rounds, and as I said earlier, I think we will be interrupted at some point for another vote, but hopefully that will go fast. Um, I want to begin with you, um, Mr. Cannon. I, I'm going to, I'm not going to use your full title just because it, for either of you, because it's long. So um, if you're, as you're looking at this current crisis, how can it be resolved? What needs to happen in order to get through the current impasse? Thank you, Senator and, and Senator Risch. Uh, I think we would all associate ourselves with your comments as well. I, I think what is needed to get through this impasse is for the party leaders to come back together uh, and do what is necessary uh, for Georgian democracy to move forward. The conversations over uh, recent weeks that the U.S. and the EU have been facilitating, and now people are using the word mediating, have centered around the necessity of electoral reforms, of judicial reforms, 
of how uh, the parliament will be conducted, uh, particularly using European models where uh, committee chairs are shared among parties. And then I, I think where it comes down to the areas of disagreement is uh, what to do about uh, several opposition leaders who are currently detained, as well as the way forward politically uh, with elections. And uh, this is so critically important for the future of Georgia, as you all have eloquently said, and we are there supporting, cajoling, advising, pushing, but the leaders of the parties have to reach agreement for the sake of the country. And you mentioned the opposition leader, Melia's arrest. Did Georgian authorities need to arrest him, and how helpful would it be to resolve his arrest to let him out in terms of getting the opposition party to come to the table, the UNM? Uh, Madam Chairwoman, the previous uh, prime minister saw the peril in uh, making the precipitous move to arrest the leader of the opposition, and that's why he resigned on principle. And I think many people hoped that would be a shock to the political culture, and unfortunately uh, his fears were realized the next week. Uh, Mr. Melia uh, did break uh, the terms of his previous release. He took off his electronic bracelet. And so I think this gets into this issue of the full embrace of democratic norms and the rule of law by all Georgian leaders. And so I, this is why I think uh, no one is blameless in the situation, but all Georgians should have a vested interest in finding a path forward, as they did last year in an agreement March 8th which allowed elections to go forward on revised terms that all agreed. And that's basically agreeing on the rules of the game and sticking to them. And Ms. McDonald, you pointed out that the OSCE um, made a number of recommendations for election reform. Can you go through what those recommendations are and how, to what extent they've been part of any mediation discussions? Sure. Thank you, uh, Chairwoman Shaheen, for the question. So the OSCE ODIR report, um, as, as you noted, uh, listed a number of serious shortcomings. Um, they were focused around um, the allegations of uh, voter pressure uh, and voter intimidation. Uh, the second uh, basket, if I could call it that, of issues was around the uh, composition of the electoral commissions at the central district and precinct levels. Um, and a blurring of the lines between the state and ruling party roles in administration of elections. So, again, getting to this question of ruling party dominance in state institutions. Uh, and the third was around, uh, the third major basket, I would say, was around the um, electoral grievance process and legal remedy. Um, so we saw from domestic monitors on the ground, there were about 3,000 that, uh, that were deployed on, on, during the election. Um, they also listed a number of these shortcomings. And in that last basket, they noted that of 1,660 complaints, that the vast majority of those were, were cast aside um, and, and never actually made it to the, uh, to, to the judicial um, uh, uh, consideration. So these are the areas um, in which ODIR uh, has really, uh, which sets the gold standard, has really focused uh, the reforms and the re recommendations going forward. So I had a chance last week to talk with, actually to Zoom with, uh, several MPs from Georgia Dream. And one of the things they said to me was that they had, that the members of parliament from Georgia Dream were um, supportive of the recommendations around election reform, and that it was UNM and the opposition parties who were opposed. Is that your understanding, either you or Mr. Kent, of the current situation? So um, the uh, electoral reform process is, of course, part of the, uh, the negotiations. And while we, we very much believe that it is the role of the Georgians to own that process. We also um, have urged that that be an inclusive process, that it be transparent, that it be facilitated, that it be um, uh, that there be feedback and a feedback loop between constituents uh, and their leaders uh, on all sides. So that is, I think, the um, the, the nugget of what ODIR and OSCE has said is missing. Um, we have, of course, urged the opposition parties to take up their seats. I think we've seen um, in polling what Georgians care about, right? It's, uh, it's jobs, it's salaries, right. it's unemployment, it's COVID, uh, poverty. 
uh, to, so to get to the business of governing and hashing out uh, these electoral reforms. From, from your answer, it sounds like you think there is not necessarily a full commitment on either side to do that. Is that an accurate assessment of my understanding of your answer? I believe it's accurate to say that both parties need to come in good faith to the table to move forward rapidly and in an inclusive manner on the electoral reforms. Yes. And, and Mr. Kent, what more can we do? Can Ambassador Degnan do? Can the United States do? Can we here, as part of this hearing, do to encourage Georgians on both sides to come to the table? And I think Senator Risch... Um, put it very well when he said that the ruling party has a special responsibility to help get people back to the table to come to an agreement. I think you're holding this hearing today and your opening statements uh, show the right messaging, and so I think that's very much valued. Uh, Georgians understand how critically important friends here in this town, bipartisan, in Congress, in administrations, uh, under different presidents, have been to Georgia's success. And so to hear longtime friends of Georgia give that very direct message as friends is critically important. I realize COVID has prevented all of us from traveling mm -hmm. over the past year. Uh, we are getting to the point where both people in Washington and our embassies are starting to be vaccinated. And perhaps by the time we get to the Memorial Day recess, it'll be possible for travel again. And uh, certainly, as you noted, some Georgians have started traveling here as of last week. So I think the clear, consistent messaging and uh, making clear that while we support a successful Georgia, we also expect Georgia's leaders to do what their country needs them to do. Well, thank you. Let's hope the current impasse is resolved before Memorial Day. Senator Johnson. Oh, thank you, Madam Chair. Senator Rich has guaranteed me he just wants to ask a really short question, like a, a normal Senator human being short question, right? <laughs> But look, this is the question I have. The, the EU, as you know, has recently implemented uh, conditionality on uh, some of its financial assistance to Georgia. Um, I'm wondering if we ought to be looking at uh, conditionality on our military or financial assistance to Georgia. If you don't feel, I know this is a policy question and goes up the chain pretty high. If you don't feel comfortable about giving me your thoughts on that, no problem. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Well, sir, I know you and your colleagues last year put some limited conditionality on part of the aid to Georgia, and uh, we certainly explained that to our Georgian friends, that this was friends of Georgia wanting Georgia to succeed, and uh, the, particularly the appropriators have been extremely generous in the assistance with the hard earmarks to Georgia uh, over the years. I, I think it is uh, the issue of conditionality is something that we've looked at in other circumstances as well. Uh, your colleagues have put that on Ukraine's security assistance, for instance. So I, I think it's something to consider, uh, both the intent of what uh, the appropriations are meant for as well as the conditionality. But I, I think it's, it remains a shared commitment of uh, those in Congress, both houses, both parties, as well as in the administration, to see Georgia succeed and take the steps that Georgia needs to succeed. Appreciate that. And I, I, I guess that's why I'm thinking about it is the last ones we put on doesn't seem to have moved the needle very much. And I think uh, next time it may be uh, a little more stringent. Ms. McDonald, do you have thoughts in that regard? Yes, thank you for asking. Um, I think what I would say about this is that we are constantly assessing how best to make our assistance most effective. And in terms of the reforms that we have talked about, we can't want it more than they do. They have to commit to these. Um, and so I do think that while we're focused on dialogue, we're focused on resolving the impasse and helping support the Georgians as they have, a, as they have this discussion, um, we have to absolutely be considering all approaches and constantly uh, looking at what approaches and tools might be helpful. Thank you very much, both of you, for your thoughts. I appreciate it. Senator Johnson, since they've called the vote, shall we go vote and come back? Sure. That makes sense. The... Subcommittee on European Affairs of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come back to order, and we will go to Senator Johnson, the ranking member, for his questions. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, in preparing for this hearing, taking a look at the, the situation in Georgia, to me it's, it's pretty obvious their main problem is the problem that's been around there since, since the Russian invasion, and that is the big problem that's faced them as well as uh, how that 
really prevents them from proceeding into NATO integration, uh, greater European integration. But then underlying that and what's preventing that is, again, the political prosecutions and, and the elections. So I guess I'd kind of like to drill down a little bit on the, the, the election issues. I, I will say I mentioned this to uh, uh, Senator Shaheen earlier. Um, there's some eerie, eerie similarities when you, when you kind of uh, take a look at this. this you know, democracy is hard. You know, there's no election that's perfect. But, Ms. McDonald, can you talk a little bit about uh, one of the things you, you talked about, three main areas, voter pressure, intimidation. Can you just describe what you're talking about there, what, how that manifests itself? Yeah, certainly. Uh, thank, you for the, thank you for the question, Ranking Member Johnson. So voter pressure and intimidation is perhaps the hardest to capture in an electoral grievance process because this is the informal uh, pressure process, the intimidation process that, uh, you know, is usually informal. And so... The allegations, um, the serious allegations that ODIR OSCE referred to in, 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 this, uh, in this area of shortcomings um, is, I think, um, one of the more difficult to try to quantify or to capture within, um, within polling and within um, the uh, electoral grievance process. So did that, and you just mentioned the word, so did that lead into the second of the third problem, yep. the three problems is there just wasn't a perceived proper adjudication of these. So were these like filed affidavits or something similar to that of, of uh, voter intimidation, voter pressure, and then they were just never looked at, just yeah. basically ignored? So uh, traditionally how this, how this works is uh, at the precinct and district level, if there are grievances, it's the electoral commission at that level, so the, the, the precinct or the district level, to take a look at those grievances. And then if there are grievances that um, merit judicial review, they're referred to an administrative chamber of the judiciary. And that is where we saw, um, or I should say where uh, local observers and monitors saw the vast dismissal of their uh, electoral grievances and complaints. So is the judiciary, is it replaced with every administration? I mean, how, how political is the judiciary there? Sorry, I didn't hear the first part of the question. So is the judiciary replace that especially at that administrative level is that replaced with every new government or is this an ongoing uh, judicial body yeah so the um the reference to the uh the judicial reform and the courts that i think you made in your statement uh sir i would very much associate with myself with that many of these issues are the issues that they have been facing for many years uh related to influence within the courts and i think so the combination of both having uh, an electoral commission structure and formula for composition of those uh, district and precinct uh, level decision makers, coupled with um, a judiciary that is widely perceived as not independent and not impartial, um, I think some of the the key uh, priority issues or concerns that we have seen in the judiciary are, for example, the High Council of Judges, um, which exercises undue influence over other judges using the disciplinary system, using uh, the promotion system, et cetera. It's, it's actually pejoratively referred to as the Klan. But, but my question is, how often does the judiciary turn over? Does it, does it turn over with every administration, or are they, are they continuing courts, continuing bodies? Uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. We can get that for you. Uh, my understanding is, is that uh, the appointments of the judges uh, and the process for that is part of the judicial reform agenda that has been put forward uh, by OSCE, by ODIR, because of this issue of, of being able to appoint uh, uh, judges. And I think the, the terms are different for the different, uh, the different bodies, uh, Supreme Court, uh, uh, Constitutional Court, et cetera. Um, but I think that that is, uh, that is all part of the negotiation and the discussion about judicial reform in trying to bring a modicum of impartiality to that body. So the, the, then the third is really the, the non-independent, the partisan election commission. And, and apparently there, there are multiple levels of this. Uh, the OSCE made a number of different recommendations. I was asking my staff whether the U.S. made recommendations. We, we apparently didn't, but we're basically signing on to the OSCE. Is that correct? That is correct. We have urged, uh, we have urged parties to adopt in full the OSCE ODIR recommendations. I would note that last summer uh, with the constitutional electoral reforms, some of the recommendations were brought in 
but not all. And, and this has been part of the problem, I think, that we've seen not just on electoral reform, but also on judicial reform. We've seen this kind of drips and drabs approach, right? And this, there needs to be this comprehensive buy-in in spirit and letter to having an, uh, an independent and impartial judiciary and the electoral reform. So we have voter pressure intimidation, which is kind of hard to nail down, hard to prove, hard to adjudicate. Then you have a judicial process that's not perceived as impartial to adjudicate those claims so they don't get adjudicated. So you just have the, the hard feelings and people don't believe the results legitimate. And then the third one is the election commission itself and that structure. And here, here's the OSCE recommendation, again, that the U.S. government would back, correct? It says the composition of the election administration could be reconsidered to increase its impartiality and independence. Isn't that key? Don't you need an election commission that is completely uh, impartial, nonpartisan, or at least, there's partisanship everywhere, but at least you have a balance between one party and the other party so that no, nobody feels they have a, a, an advantage one way or the other. Is that an accurate statement? That, that is correct. Okay. Um, I had one other question here. Yeah, I'll, I'll yield back my time. Thanks. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Madam Chair. Thank you both for appearing before us and for the good work that you're doing here. I just had two uh, sort of more general topics of conversation regarding U.S. policy towards Georgia. In the wake of 2008, the United States made a sizable um, commitment to Georgia in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. They were part of the MCC program uh, at that point. There were another a number of other programs that we had in place. And you can make a, a pretty good argument that um, we uh, got substantial return on our investment. Georgia in those years made uh, a lot of progress, um, uh, nowhere near perfect, um, but that close U.S. partnership uh, really mattered. Um, and it wasn't just with the government, it was a partnership with civil society, right, trying to midwife civil society organizations on the ground uh, to be able to hold their government accountable, something that's often missing in early stage uh, democracies. Um, so uh, maybe, you know, put this to you, Mr. Kent, but uh, happy to hear from both. Um, what is... Um, what lessons can we learn from our experience in Georgia, having made a substantial commitment post-2008? And what are the ways in which U.S. assistance, if it's available um, and provided on the right terms, can make a difference to try to move beyond the current crisis? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator. You're right that we have uh, assisted Georgia immensely, billions of dollars uh, since independence, uh, with the earmark currently at $132 million. Uh, that's roughly $50 million a year in various forms of security assistance, $40 million on economic uh, development, and uh, roughly $35 million for uh, democracy and governance building. Uh, and uh, I think our efforts have been focused on helping Georgia succeed as a uh, secure company, a country that can uh, contribute to collective security, to succeed economically, uh, to reduce dependence on Russia, uh, and do so in a way that drives growth uh, and prosperity at home rather than having Georgians seek uh, employment abroad, and then obviously strengthening the institutions of governance, whether it's the court system, whether it's being responsive to the needs of citizens. And so I think uh, a lot has been done to help remake uh, Georgia, even physically, the MCC's focus the first round of the MCC Millennium Challenge Corporation Compact was on infrastructure. And so there, there's very good infrastructure now in Georgia that didn't exist previously. Uh, the second round was on education. Again, Georgians understand that they need to uh, improve uh, the student-centric education so young Georgians can succeed in the 21st century. Uh, but I, I think in, in, in terms of the embrace of the uh, democratic norms and the political culture, I think that is an area where there's still work to be done. What's the sort of status of um, civil society groups and you say work to be done? Um, how much opportunity exists to 
um, do works in the civil sector. I think a lot about the Global Engagement Center. We've been successful in um, growing the, pe- the capacity to support organizations that are countering propaganda, that are frankly just telling objective uh, stories, not influenced or paid for by foreign actors. Um, what, have, what have we learned about our ability to uh, try to open up that space in Georgia with U.S. Uh, aid programming? Uh, I'll say that Georgian uh, civil society is vibrant, uh, they are articulate, and uh, I think whether uh, there are specific areas like media freedoms or corruption and transparency, uh, while we have partnered with Georgian civil society, there are excellent dedicated Georgians who are working to build a more successful society uh, and don't see the path to success only in government service, and I think that is uh, how it should be. And I'll, I'll let uh, Kara talk about some of the programs that uh, DRL works on, but I, I think whether it's our public diplomacy section, which runs a small grants program and works with independent media sources, or our USAID colleagues, uh, we have a lot of excellent partners who are dedicated uh, to laterally building out a Georgian society uh, that has a voice and has um, a role to play in, in the country's success. Thank you for the question. Um, you are correct. The civil society, the vibrancy, the vibrancy of civil society is such a fundamental piece. It's a hallmark of a democracy. And so we have uh, invested with generous congressional support uh, tremendously in civil society, and I would also say in in uh, free media. And I and I mentioned the media in my testimony in particular because it is an area where we see um, the best opportunity to help Georgia counter a lot of the disinformation and misinformation and propaganda that um, has uh, been working to de- destabilize its society. Um, USAID has uh, quite a robust uh, what they call a democracy governance uh, portfolio. It's about 33.5 million of the 132 million uh, year earmark. Of that, 8 million specifically goes to civil society. Uh, we in DRL also have uh, just over 1 million. It's not from the earmark. It's in HRDF, which is uh, Human Rights Defenders Fund, and FFF, which is uh, Fundamental Freedoms Fund, uh, just over 1 million also supporting um, uh, various programs in terms of civil society um, uh, helping build some of this public confidence, uh, transparency, accountability between constituents and their leaders. Um, the one thing that I would mention on the uh, media the media side, uh, we also fund out of DRL uh, six different regional programs of which uh, Georgia is a part that works specifically to counter malign influence and propaganda. That programming is oriented at Uh, bolstering truthful narratives, uh, increasing access of independent media voices, um, proliferating those independent media voices, allowing them space and helping them gain space to operate, um, uh, being able to understand and work within uh, a disinformation environment and uh, protection of uh, of their information technology. So um, it's quite a it's it's quite a robust program, and and I must say it's one that we're we're very committed to, uh, given given the uh, given the threats. You know, there's so many similarities between what has happened in Georgia and Ukraine, and um, you know what Russia is really betting on is that they can destabilize the uh, both politics and economics of both of these nations so that they eventually give up and sort of make the choice without a full invasion to uh, put themselves back under the arm of the Kremlin. And so it's always wild to me that, you know, we're talking about spending north of $100 million in Georgia this year, and yet we will, without debate, approve another $4 billion in a European reassurance initiative um, that's dedicated to military protection along NATO's uh, eastern flank. And not that that isn't important, but it just seems to me to be such a misallocation of resources that we are spending multiple billions of dollars on the military reinforcement of Europe, when the true vulnerability of countries like Europe or Ukraine um, really lie in the ability of the Russians to probe at the strength of the uh, political and economic infrastructure. And so uh, look forward as we get ready for the next budget to you know, try to make the case for how efficacious 
these funding programs are for economic development, education, um, media independence, civil society groups, and how that probably is at least as good an investment uh, as continuing to send rotational U.S. forces um, into uh, the areas around Russia's periphery. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Murphy. And I understand that we have Senator Van Hollen um, ready to appear virtually. Yes. Uh, hi, Madam Chair. Thank you very much uh, for holding this hearing. And I want to thank uh, both our witnesses uh, for their uh, public service. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about uh, the current uh, situation on the ground in Georgia. And uh, my question is, how do we break this uh, deadlock? And I think that the status quo right now is uh, being easily exploited by, by Russia. So should the ruling party uh, move first uh, and release uh, Melia? Uh, or should the opposition uh, drop its demand for snap elections? Should this be something that uh, happens uh, simultaneously? And really most importantly, what role uh, can the United States play uh, in trying to uh, resolve uh, this deadlock uh, that I think is, again, is only serving the interests of, of, of Russia and those uh, who do not support uh, the democratic, uh, a, a democratic trajectory in, in Georgia? Uh, Senator, thank you for your question. I believe what the U.S. can do is uh, message, including with this hearing and your, your questions and your, your, your signals that you've sent in, in, in uh, your statement, to our friends uh, all across the Georgia political spectrum that they need to get back into the room together and come to an agreement. Uh, the U.S. is actually in the room. Uh, our ambassador is there. The EU mediator, uh, Danielson, uh, will be back there later this week. Uh, and we are uh, trying our best to bring the Georgians together. I, I will be honest that both sides look to us to deliver the other side. And uh, in the end, while we can control and push, uh, they have to own this process because they are the ones uh, who have to commit and then they're the ones who have to deliver. And so I, I think in terms of the details of uh, you, you've, you've hit, the, I think, the, um, the points of contention between the sides. Uh, I think there is more... Uh, room of agreement on the reform path forward on uh, electoral reform that my colleague uh, detailed, the judicial reform that uh, Kara also mentioned, and then again how uh, they might better share uh, assignments in the parliament. Uh, but the two areas you identified are the two sticking points, and the two sides need to come together and reach agreement. Appreciate that. Um, while I've got you here, it's not directly related uh, to this uh, current uh, impasse. Uh, but the, the three plus three regional platform uh, proposed by Russia, Turkey, and Iran uh, that you referenced in your testimony, can you talk a little bit about what you see as um, their goals um, and how that uh, could impact uh, Georgia? Uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. Uh, the For the past quarter century, the framework for approaching uh, the uh, real challenge in the South Caucasus on security, and particularly the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, has been led by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, a different element from the uh, Office of Democracy and Human Rights, ODIR, that helps run elections. And they uh, are intimately involved in both uh, the, what's called the Minsk Group process for Nagorno-Karabakh, as well as the Geneva International Discussions uh, which address uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And so this is the appropriate framework. All the countries that are involved are members and have a shared commitment uh, uh, to values and, and, and processes. And the 3 plus 3 uh, proposal is really a, a great departure from that values-based all-stakeholder process. Uh, it would be exclusive. Uh, it would focus on uh, regional infrastructure. And uh, the Georgians are concerned because... Uh, some of the designs that the Russians have put on the table would actually circumvent Georgia with rail and uh, road infrastructure in the same way that the Nord Stream and Turk Stream pipelines circumvent Ukraine for provision of gas to Western Europe. And so that is the threat that Georgia sees to this platform. Uh, and they also very rightly don't want to go to the negotiating table with a country that occupies 20% of their territory and refuses to live up to its own commitments uh, made uh, to French President Sarkozy in the aftermath of the 2008 war. 
So I think that is why we believe that the uh, best uh, arrangements for engaging on regional security are with the organization that was set up to deal with that, and that's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Appreciate that. Thank, thank you very much, um, Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you both for your testimony. Thank you very much, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Johnson, do you have any further questions? I do you remember the last one? Uh, first, I, I do want to talk a little bit about you know, exactly how Russia has been behaving. I know I met with the Georgian delegation, I think, before COVID, and they were, they were complaining about Russia keeps advancing their lines and just kind of creeping forward. What, what's been the current situation over the last year or two? Unfortunately, Senator, the Russians continue uh, to push the envelope, uh, and, and they might try to claim that they are uh, South Ossetians or Abkhazians, but it's pretty clear when you go to the line, uh, the contact line, and if, uh, if you haven't done that, uh, I'm sure I, I have. You have. Uh, when you pull up those binoculars, uh, those are Russians staring back at you with binoculars. Uh, so it's pretty clear who's there. And uh, over the last two years, there have been several instances where they haven't just been putting up razor wire and fencing on uh, the generally agreed upon uh, border demarcation between what are provinces, uh, Sedi and South uh, Abkhazia, but also actually moving the boundary forward or, or staking out a position. And so um, uh, the Georgians have every right to complain because, again, Russia, after the 2008 war, committed, first of all, for complete humanitarian access, which they do not provide. They also committed to pull their troops back to the positions that existed prior to the 2008 war. They haven't done that. Uh, there are a half dozen Georgians who are detained, essentially imprisoned, uh, and so that is why we do have this process, the Geneva International Discussions. Uh, we're a party to those conversations. The next round will happen later this week. So uh, I, I think in terms of the actual aggression, uh, it continues. Uh, it's not a shooting war, but it's, it's certainly a situation of intimidation. And the attacks, um, the cyber attacks also continue. The, the landmark one was in October 2019. Uh, we attributed it to the GRU. About 15,000 websites and businesses were affected. Um, they were attacking Georgia with cyber attacks as early as 2006, uh, and they continue to do so. So the Russian attacks are uh, in cyber. Uh, there are economic pressures. There's the disinformation war, and then there's the occupation of 20% of Georgian territory. Which just underscores Georgia's main problem right now is Russia, and if they can... Uh agree on how to resolve their political differences, they'd be in much better shape. Can you speak just a little bit about the multi-party system there? You know, there are two main parties. Uh, how independent, how aligned are the various smaller parties? Either one, whoever. Yeah, so, so Senator, the, um, th there are, as you said, two main parties. I think they're the ones that people who have watched George over the last, uh, if you will, 20 years, uh, uh, the current ruling party, which has been in office since uh, Senator Shaheen and Rish uh, saw their election in uh, 2012, replaced uh, uh, the government of uh, the, what's known as UNM, which was in charge between 2003 and 2012. But there are a number of other smaller parties uh, which are looking to emerge and offer Georgians a choice. So it's unlike in, uh, in the United States where you have two main parties, and it's, it's been that way uh, since any of us can remember. In Georgia, they are certainly looking to move towards a more multipolar system, uh, and they've lowered the threshold. This last election, you only needed 1% of the vote uh, in a proportional representation system, and that's why I believe there were nine par uh, parties that were elected. And uh, so I think particularly with a proportional representation system being uh, the main way of electing MPs going forward, uh, it depends on what the bottom line threshold is, but you do have other voices that are looking to emerge. So they're actually encouraging more parties as opposed to consolidating in under two? Correct. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, well, again, uh, Madam Chair, I really do applaud you for holding this hearing. Um, Senator Holland, Van Holland talked about, you know, what can the U.S. do? I think we undervalue sometimes what the U.S. Senate can do. And I think, again, as... as Mr. Ken has, has, and our witnesses have talked about holding this hearing is important. It sends an important signal. I think also potentially a Senate resolution where we can encourage, you know, a sense of the Senate, encourage the parties within Georgia to come together, settle these disputes, recognize it's not easy, but it's up to them. 
No, nobody can pressure. I, I thought it was interesting, the, the comment that both parties are looking for the U.S. to impose our will on the other. I mean, it sounds like Serbia, Kosovo. I mean, we've just heard this time and time again. It's up to those parties. So I'd love to work with you if we could develop a Senate resolution passed through this committee and then passed through the Senate. I think could also send an important signal and might be helpful. Um, I agree. I think that's a really good suggestion. And as Ms. McDonald said, we can't want it more than they do. Um, it's really important for the Georgians themselves to want to figure out how to end this impasse. Um, I, I just want to follow up on a couple of lines of questioning that you and others have started. I, I want to go back, um, Mr. Kent, to your opening comments where you talked about the um, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict has given Russia an opportunity to have troops on the ground um, another opportunity to have troops on the ground in the neighborhood. Can you speak to what what kind of message that sends to Georgia and to those um, Georgians who are in Abkhazia and South Ossetia who would, would like to be free of Russian influence to have um, the additional Russian troops in the neighborhood? Uh, thank you, Chairwoman. Uh, most of the ethnic Georgians who traditionally lived in Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia have been ethnically cleansed. There are hundreds of thousands of IDPs, most of them dating back uh, several decades. Another 25,000 were pushed out of uh, South Ossetia uh, as part of the 2008 war. So you know, Russian troops, as Senator Johnson, maybe you have seen uh, through the binoculars, are, are there on Georgian territory. Um, the Russians also manned several bases in Armenia, uh, and help with the border guard uh, services along the, the border with Turkey in particular. Uh, Russia acts as Armenia's security guarantor vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. And then the Russian peacekeepers are now in Nagorno-Karabakh um, for the first time since the breakup of the, the Soviet Union. And so I think uh, in part this is uh, the challenge of being a country like Georgia. Uh, I'm sure Foreign Minister Zelkalyani, when he has come through and, and, and shares the, his vision of Georgia, an ancient nation surrounded by three empires, the, the Russian, uh, the Ottoman, and the Persian. And sometimes the names change, but those dynamics for a small country like Georgia remain. And so I think particularly when you have the legacy states, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, of those three empires, uh, uh, between which Georgia has sought to survive for millennia, um, that they feel that pressure uh, and that's why they turn to us as what they see their main strategic partner. And it's pr precisely, as Senator Johnson said, I mean, when that is your threat, you shouldn't be uh, creating a domestic political crisis. You need to join ranks, sort out the domestic uh, rules of the game, and then focus on your real, real challenges, which are the uh, changed geostrategic uh, reality of the South Caucasus and straightening out your economy to be competitive, uh, and particularly in a post-COVID environment. So, when we were there in 2012, Ivanishvili was the, considered the father of Georgian Dream, funded Georgian Dream, um, and was also criticized for being too close to Russia and taking orders from Russia, basically. Um, now, he denied that, and as I understand, has continued to deny that, and Georgian Dream continues to deny that. But to what extent do we think um, there is still some truth in that, and how much are we concerned that uh, Georgia Dream may not feel free to make its own decisions about trying to resolve the current crisis, but is continuing the impasse because it benefits Russia? Madam Chairwoman, I, I think it's uh, a uh, safe to assess that the Georgia Dream government which has been in office starting with Benzina Ivanishvili as prime minister and then as party chair and now stepping down formally from that role, has retained Georgia's commitment to its uh, path of integration in Western institutions. It's a Georgia Dream government that has announced that it will apply for EU membership in 2024. They continue to want to join NATO. And so I think it's very clear that not only is that the overwhelming choice of at least three-quarters of Georgians it has consistently been uh, the path of choice of the Georgia Dream governments uh, that were started by and continue to be led by, whether formally as a chair or informally as the founder, Benzina Ivanishvili. So I, I, think, I, I think when we hear Georgians, uh, including the new prime minister who was the defense minister and with whom we worked closely, 
that commitment to Georgia's path uh, and their strategic goal is clear. I think this hearing has focused on whether the uh, uh, commitment is to the values that will lead them to that path because NATO isn't just a military alliance. It's a community of countries that share values. And I think this really is the, the ultimate test and why these developments that you've called the hearing to discuss are so important for Georgia's future. Well, thank you. And certainly, as we look at their um, positioning within Europe, Eurasia between three empires, um, historic empires, having support from the West and that integration with the European community and the West is very important in providing the support that will help them continue towards um, democratization and building of their institutions. Can I just ask a final question? Um, Senator Johnson suggested a resolution, which has uh, been one way that the Senate has made clear how we view um, certain issues. How helpful do either of you think that would be with the current crisis? And is there anything else as you think about what this committee and what the Senate might do to make clear um, the message that we have that all parties should come to the, the table, they should negotiate an end to this crisis, and they should move on in a way that um, continues to be a strong partner and ally of the United States. Thank you, George. <laughs> Uh, thank you for the question, and I uh, very much wanted to add a couple of thoughts. Um, Good. I think modeling of the bipartisan leadership that you're showing here today is so important for Georgian leadership to see. That, that is really the model that we have been pushing for, that is coming together, a culture of power sharing, a culture of pluralism, um, and I wanted to make a quick comment about Ranking Member Johnson's question regarding the landscape of the political parties. Um, what I would note on this is that a lot of the assistance that we uh, have been providing is focused on building platform-based parties, not personality-based parties, with the notion that that's how you coalition build. You get around issues. You get around issues that your constituents care about, um, and that's how you build coalitions uh, within a multi-party uh, system that we've seen in Georgia. But thank you also for um, uh, the question about how Congress can help. I wanted to make one other quick comment, if you'll per permit me, uh, Madam Chairwoman. Please. And that is, um, as we focus on the importance of compromise in this uh, dialogue and getting through this impasse, um, we feel it's very important also to continue to press and urge for these electoral and judicial reforms and the buy-in of these parties, both in spirit and letter, Right. We have, we have found this um, process of reform uh, to be a very, very long one uh, in Georgia, as, particularly as, uh, as regards the judicial sector. And I think we don't want to lose sight of that uh, longer, wider, structural set of issues because our, my fear is, is that uh, we get past an impasse and then you come back around to these key issues and the protests start again. And... And then again, it goes into playing into, into Russian hands. So it is really those wider issues. And frankly, the OSC ODIR report is an excellent roadmap. Good. Well, thank you both very much for your testimony this afternoon and for your continuing good work to help resolve, uh, support the Georgians in resolving their own impasse. And uh, we stand ready to help in any way we can. And um, we will go forward with the resolution that Senator Johnson suggests. Thank you. This hearing is now ended.